0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We are now two days out from the inauguration of Donald Trump.
1: to like old time
2: it's just very Do you like Kennedy's
0: And we want to talk about presidential inaugurations, but not spend too much time talking about Trump because we will have plenty of time to do that in the future. I
3: mean, I think the thing about it also is that you really get away with an underwhelming speech in a venue like that because of the pageantry of oh, it. Oh, so, not know. Carter's is so bad. I so wanted. to know
1: No, that that
0: So bad. what we've been doing this week, and I should say, I always forget to do this, I'm joined by Helen, Maha, Aaron, and Chris Brook. Welcome back, who's to be distinguished from Chris Bickerton, who we had on last week and I forgot also to announce. Washington 2nd <laughs> is
1: good. Yeah, hey <laughs> But I also sort of like, I'm trying to get it in. Today's the anniversary of... Farewell.
0: We've been looking at past inaugurals, trying to work out which are our favourites. Some of our favourites, I should warn you, are the well-known ones, but not all of them. There are one or two surprises here. But also just to try and get a sense, because it's an amazing thing. I don't want to sound too kind of sentimental about this. It's an amazing thing to read these. We haven't read all of them, but to read this sequence of speeches, they've never missed one in the same way that America's never missed an election right back to the beginning, every time a president was due to get up and deliver one of these, it's happened. Even in war, even when previous ones just been assassinated, they still do it. And they're all kind of the same. (laughs) Some of them are really long. Harrison, I think, was so long, he got pneumonia, and it killed him. (laughs) 30 days afterwards. Right. (laughs) Some of them are really short, including perhaps the best of all, which we'll come to at the end. Although actually, I think the shortest is Roosevelt in 45 january 45 where he just kind of says we just need to get on with this war but they also kind of tell a story of america so we're just going to do it chronologically see how we get on we won't do all of them we we will be here forever we're going to start with john adams which is the chris the third inaugural am i right there are 57 there are 57 there are 57 varieties of ketchup um What's so fun about John Adams?
4: Well, just one thing caught my eye. So we're back in 1797. Presidential inaugurals haven't yet settled down into a rhetorical genre. There's been Washington taking the presidency for the first time. And then when Washington is re-elected, he has one of these incredibly short inaugurals. Is that maybe the shortest? It, it may be the shortest. He just says, oh, well, you know, I, I've been Thanks, asked God. to do this again and back to work. It's very, very short. And Adams, he's been Washington's vice president but he's about to take the oath of office and it's not a great piece of oratory but one passage in it looking through it really stood out because adams comments on the question of potential foreign interference in presidential selection and it could be that he's it sounds reading it today as if he's talking through the ages straight to donald trump And just I want to read one passage from it. He talks about the purity of our free, fair, virtuous and independent elections. If an election is to be determined by a majority of a single vote, and that can be procured by a party through artifice or corruption, the government may be the choice of a party for its own ends, not of the nation for the national good. If that solitary suffrage can be obtained by foreign nations, by flattery or menaces, by fraud or violence, by terror, intrigue or venality the government may not be the choice of the American people but of foreign nations. It may be foreign nations who govern us and not we the people who govern ourselves and candid men will acknowledge that in such cases choice would have little advantage to boast of over lot or chance. Donald.
0: (laughs) 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 Wow. (laughs) That almost needs no comment. So in the spirit of we've got to get through 200 plus years. Next one, Aaron. Is this your favorite? So, would would next the next one was Jefferson, and, and Jefferson's eighteen oh one. So, the one that Chris is talking about there is not one that tends to crop up in these. I was looking at USA Today today, and it had its list of the best inaugurals and it was the usual suspects, and it included Jefferson, eighteen oh one. So, what's so great about Jefferson, eighteen oh
2: one? Well, Jefferson, eighteen oh one comes after the election of eighteen hundred, which is by far and away though the United States hasn't had that many presidential elections at this point was a incredibly partisan and polarizing election. It's sometimes referred to as United States second you <laughs> revolution. You really get the outlines of partisan politics, not as they are in the modern era, but certainly in the form that we would recognize where John Adams is running against Jefferson. You actually have splits in uh, John Adams' Federalist Party between Adams on the one hand and Hamilton on the other, who if you are a Broadway fan, you might have heard of Alexander Hamilton
0: before. Coming to the London's West End.
2: That's right. I have my tickets. Apparently Maha has tickets as well. So let's just talk about Hamilton for the rest of the show. No. And it actually goes to the House of Representatives because Jefferson and Burr tie in the Electoral College, which is still with us today. Historians have said, well, you know, really, Adams should have won because slaves should not have counted as three fifths of a person. So the Electoral College was a major debating point there. So it's got a lot of echoes of today. And
4: and
0: the election itself was unbelievably dirty, right? They they, they accused each other of things that do make what we've had recently look relatively tame. Right? right.
2: I mean, well not relatively not tame. tame it, I, but,
0: but I mean, yes, nothing. Be, you, makes you know, a lot Jefferson like to look is tame. basically
2: being accused of being a French agent. Hamilton is accusing Adams of selling out the party. You have kind of echoes of Clinton v. Saunders there. So there's Adams is
0: accused of being fat.
2: That's accurate, Which though. he was, yeah. Anyway. He, was, he was fat. Sorry, so that you, was we, like need to on, we need to get on to you. Uh, so Jefferson comes in, and in his inaugural address, he first first off starts out by saying how humbled he is by being elected, by saying that he's you know recognizes that his talents are just not up to the task, which, of course, is not true. And then probably the most famous section of the inaugural is, he says, Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans— We are all federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. So again, he's saying that even though we disagree on policy matters, we all agree on this constitutional democratic form of government that we have created, with exception to women, slaves, others that I could go on, and that we don't really need to worry about people who might want to dissolve the country because they can be combated with reason and free speech, right? So the
0: the solution to
2: bad ideas is combating them with good ideas.
0: So he does, as you say, he has that kind of humble thing, which they all do for a while. I think it's a kind of Roman... It's a very much
2: kind of thing that's expected of them. Yeah,
0: here I am, a humble citizen. This office has been thrust upon me. I'm probably not up to the job. And we'll come on to some of the others who say that. But the striking thing with Jefferson is, as you say, he really doesn't believe it. And there's that one line later on where he says, I'm going to quote this. Mock humble. I shall often go wrong through defect of judgment. When right, I shall often be thought wrong by those whose positions will not command a view of the whole ground, i.e., I'm often going to be right and people aren't going to appreciate it. Unbelievably arrogant. <laughs> right? Trumpian. It's, Trumpian it's, in it. It's a modern in a modern of-
2: parlance we would call that
0: humble bragging. Yeah, we would. A humble brag. It was. It um, is the definitive humble brag and of course he had a lot to brag about.
2: <laughs> yes, he was a statesman an inventor spoke multiple languages. So not wrote so the Declaration Trumpian of independence with a little help on the side. So on and so forth.
1: But it's also striking that when it came to his death, what he wanted on his gravestone, he did not put president of the United States. He did not think it was one of the three major achievements of his life. Oh, that's that's
0: also kind of humble bragging, isn't it? I did not. I did I've not done realize. so much that there's not room to yeah. say that I was president.
2: Oh, right. Was I president? I had forgotten.
0: <laughs> so so one of the, you've said this, Aaron, yourself, that if you want to find a historical comparison for Trump and Trump's election, you go to the Jackson era. And that's been pointed out by quite a few people. It's got that sort of um, rumbustious quality, Mm -hmm. that sort of anti-Washington quality, we'd call it now, you know, anti the federal government. You know, this guy comes in to shake things up. So I had a look at Jackson's first inaugural to see if that was going to be anything like Trump's. Here's this guy, you know, coming in to sort of tell it like it is. No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it, it has two qualities, which I'm guessing we're not going to get on Friday. One is, I don't think he's sort of, being artificially humble. He just sounds like he is a bit overwhelmed. Um, and he does genuinely imply that he's a little nervous as to whether he's up to the job. I don't think, if I was Trump's speechwriter, I would get Trump to go back to this rhetorical device. I think it'd be quite effective, but he's not going to. And then secondly, he says basically, you have elected me to stop the government spending money. I am here simply to impose on American government real frugality. Trump's not going to say that either. So actually, Jackson was the Tea Party candidate, right? So say a Tea Party person had won, plausibly they could have come in and said this is now the moment to stop spending money.
1: It is, but and in some sense, though, that's what Reagan ends up saying. I mean, the first part of Reagan's speech is pretty ideological. You know, the era of big government is over. He doesn't quite say that, but some version of that is what he says. So in that sense, you know, there's a line that goes from Jackson to Reagan as well.
0: But it's a sense of how different Trump is from a classic Republican candidate in this Mode. I mean, Republican and contemporary. In lowercase yeah. 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 He's nothing. I mean, he's coming to Washington to spend money.
2: That would seem to be the case. Or at the very least, right, he's coming to Washington, if not to spend our money, to try to raise it from other people, whether it be China through tariffs or Mexico through paying for infrastructure um, and so on. There
1: is one way in which he's trying to sound like a, a certain kind of probably Eisenhower-era Republican, and that is, is he wants to cut down the amount of money spent on military contracting. I mean, that's what he speaks, confrontation with these various defence contractors, including about the F-35 programme have been about. So on the one hand, he wants to spend lots of money on infrastructure. On the other, he wants to say, you're getting screwed by these defence contractors, then they're going to have less taxpayers' money.
0: And the other thing that may be Jacksonian is that there may be a confrontation with the Federal Reserve, with the bank. Yeah. And that was obviously Jackson's big thing too. Mm. So... This is really a kind of breakneck race through 200 plus years of history. So I'm just going to summarize about 100 and something years. Should we call this section the
2: 19th century for dummies?
0: It's not even for dummies because I'm one of the dummies. So I had to read this to work out what's going on. So I said to Maha before we started, by the presidents no one's ever heard of. And she said, you've never heard of them because you didn't have to study them at school. Because I said, Polk and Taylor and Franklin Pierce. So I read these. They weren't particularly interesting. But what was really striking about them is they did that kind of humble thing. But they really sounded like they meant it. And it's actually quite chilling as each of the presidents who fails to tackle the issues that are going to lead to a civil war says, I'm not sure I'm up to this. I am a person on whom this office has been thrust. And I have to tell you, I can't remember one of them more or less says, I have to tell you, I am terrified. I really don't think I know what to do here. And you kind of think, you're right, you don't know what to do here. And
2: in a way, you could say in their defense, they did keep their campaign promises. (laughs) Right.
0: which was they don't know what they're doing (laughs) and then Lincoln who in many ways does change everything and he just changes the total rhetorical tenor of these addresses because he comes in in 1861 and he says I know what I'm doing I know what I think and there's no kind of either fake or real humility in his address at all there's none of that kind of which he could have done I'm this guy from nowhere who's like, it's just I'm here and this is what's going to happen but the ones before that it's almost heartbreaking you kind of want to say to them you're meant to be reassuring people it's all very well to be Roman about this but seriously you don't know what you're going to do so and then there's a the civil war and then other stuff happens and then <laughs> we then, then there's other things and we get to 1933 so we now come back to one of the ones that is one of the classics and we, we might come back to Lincoln at the end so Helen what do you like about Roosevelt in 33
1: What I like about it is two things first of all it it's almost like new testament like in its righteousness it is just full so there's not a lot of humility in that it's one it's full either. of fury and uh, the best line in it i think is is when he says the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization we may now restore that temple to the ancient truths i mean this is not somebody who thinks you just need a bit of fixing of you know a bit more federal government intervention in America and you're going to get it out of the Depression. This is someone who's kind of saying that in some respects America is now rotten to the core, it has been rotten to the core by finance and he is going to engineer a change that is going to allow the restoration of America's ideals and it has that tension in it all the way through between the idea that he wants to restore something that's lost from the past and appeal to people who he describes as forward-looking. I don't think he ever really resolves that tension but the powerful parts of it are the parts that are about restoring a lost republic, lost ideals. The other thing I quite like about it is that in some places it's simply funny. I mean, he's sort of describing these things that are happening to the United States and then he suddenly says, we're not suffering from a plague of locusts. <sighs> As if this was one of the possibilities that of all the disasters that could be, you know, befalling America in the, in the 1930s. And what is... Um, striking is that he is very much in this vein, but he's certainly not alone in this vein, it is is how biblical they become in the 20th century. I don't think Trump is going to go down that road so, at so all. So they go
0: from Roman to biblical?
1: It is, with the exception that Kennedy, I think, mixes the Roman and the biblical.
4: But, but the, the transition inaugural in that sense is, is Lincoln second, because yeah. Lincoln second is the one I mean, he, he begins like Theresa May saying, I'm not going to give you a running commentary on yeah. the closing stage of the Civil War, the, the progress of our arms, he says. Then there is this Roman bit where he has these balanced parallels about the different sides in the war and and the war came. Then he snaps into the history lecture and then he seamlessly slides into the role of Old Testament prophet. And he can do that because he's called Abraham and the circumstances are extraordinary. But that's where you get the biblical resonances laid on thick.
1: It is, but I think that they then disappear for a while and then they come back and then Roosevelt is the person who, who really brings it back and he ties it, though, as I say, to this critique of the corrupting influence of finance on civilization.
0: So Roosevelt's one is obviously famous. Its catchphrase is nothing to fear but fear itself. The other thing that's striking about the speech is the bit towards the end where he says what he will do if the crisis continues... I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. Broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were, in fact, invaded by a foreign foe. I will ask for dictatorial powers. And he does. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, and he doesn't.
1: Well, he does in a sense of, of <laughs> in, is that he wants to you know rip up the constitution about the Supreme Court, right?
0: But the thing, the one thing that he doesn't do is try to bypass Congress at any point in his presidency.
2: Though he has a very favorable
0: Congress, he, he,
2: he, it would be interesting to see what he would have done with a Congress yeah. of the sort that faced Obama from 2000. He does, to but there,
0: there is a great book, Ara Katz Nelson's book *Fear Itself*, which is about this, which makes the case that that inaugural sets up, and in a sense, we've almost sort of forgotten what happened. This feeling that Roosevelt, in the era of the dictators flirted with dictatorship. And Katz Nelson's argument is he never did. He never even came close to bypassing constitutional government in the United States. He, there were points where he tried, you know, it came under real pressure. But Congress was still the primary agent of American democracy throughout Roosevelt's presidency.
2: Though I would say the one thing that's going on at this point you in Roosevelt's agree presidency is that the Supreme Court is discovering all these prerogative powers that presidents have in the U.S. Constitution that prior to that, uh, the court had been unaware of. And this might have something to do with th- this old saying, the right, the stitch in time that saved nine. Uh, Roosevelt's threat to pack the court after it struck down certain aspects of his New Deal program as unconstitutional. Right, So there is a bit of coercion being placed here on the legal system and the highest court in the land in particular. And this is where you get decisions like the Curtis Wright decision that says the president is the sole organ of foreign affairs in the United States and and things of that nature that really are giving the president a lot of slack. And then you have during World War II the Karamatsu decision which says that oh yes if the president issues an executive order and turning Japanese Americans that's fine at a time and so and I should have
0: said throughout his presidency I meant throughout the Great Depression period because of course so he says here I will ask for powers as though we were invaded though we were really at war then when they are really at war he does get those powers but during the tackling of this crisis the Great Depression, he doesn't.
1: I think the difficult thing interpreting this is, as Aaron said earlier, is, is that the Democrats have a large majority in Congress, so he's never really put to the test. The, the, but then the, the other point, point of, of Katz is,
0: Nelson's book is that that is a completely divided party between its southern wing, its racist southern tr- wing and its progressive
1: that he tries to pack the court is a big deal. No other president has basically said, in the face of Supreme Court resistance, right, we'll find some more Supreme Court justices.
0: Okay, I think we should Move on rapidly uh, to LBJ, but that's not such a big jump as the one we did up to FDR. Maha, you like LBJ's 65 speech. And I should say we're getting into the era now where you can watch these. I've just read them. Helen, you've watched a lot of them. I think others have watched them on YouTube. What do you like about LBJ?
3: Uh, So this is a speech that I don't think gets remembered a lot. So what I like about it and what I think has a lot of resonances here is LBJ has been Re-elected in 1964 after signing the Civil Rights Act and over Barry Goldwater, who was running against the Civil Rights Act, um, and it's a speech very much about civil rights. And at this moment, he is wanting to move in his second—it's not really his second term, his first full term—but he's been president for you know a year and a half to. Focus on sort of anti poverty measures and what becomes the Great Society. It's a speech about trying to fold the Great Society measures in with the ongoing civil rights movement and the fact that there will be voting rights legislation later that year and what I think is interesting about it for this moment is marrying sort of a discussion around class and poverty to a discussion around racial justice we're having this whole debate now about the relative importance of those two ways of analyzing injustice and lbj perhaps more than anybody figured out how to link those two things together and saw them very much as part of the same project. And the other thing that I think is interesting about it from the biblical rhetoric perspective, and that I think points to why Johnson and Johnson alone was able to sell the civil rights project to white America and to white American legislators, is that it's wrapped in this very biblical language about the nation will redeem itself, and that, you know, this is something that we just have to do every 30 years or so, we have to redeem the fundamentals of our democracy. So, I mean, I'll read a little piece of it because I don't think people know the speech particularly well, but it's built around this idea that the nation is founded on justice. Justice was the promise that all who made the journey would share in the fruits of the land. In a land of great wealth, families must not live in hopeless poverty. In a land rich in harvest, children just must not go hungry. In a land of healing miracles, neighbors must not suffer and die untended. In a great land of learning and scholars, young people must be taught to read and write. Justice requires us to remember when any citizen denies his fellow, saying his color is not mine or his beliefs are strange and different. In that moment, he betrays America, though his forebears created this nation. Those are two paragraphs back to back. And that marriage of those two things as part of the same project, I think, is I think is very interesting.
0: Yeah. And I I hadn't read it. So I read it. And I also read Kennedy's, the one that came before, the, the the much more famous speech. And on the page, it's not at all clear why Kennedy's is the famous one and Johnson's isn't. But then, of course, Kennedy delivered his with real style. And Johnson was not an orator. Kennedy's one, you could just, you can picture the man delivering it. And with Johnson's, it's quite hard.
1: It is, I mean, I watched um, Johnson's and it, it's interesting when you read it, Maha, it sounds kind of sort of inspiring but when you, you, watch, sh- you should be present When you watch Johnson do it it's just pitiful at times I mean sorry but it's just painful watching him because he's quite he was quite a tall man but he actually looks really small when he's delivering it he's kind of got his body all hunched up he doesn't seem at all relaxed in his own skin and a lot of it including I think using the, the sort of the biblical allusions are just not Johnson at all they're just not the language in which he talks about politics this is one of the most earthy like politicians in America's um, history and with a very Checkered past With, when it comes to so race relations, very, among other yeah, things. Yeah, a very crude way in which power was um, exercised. He kind of reminds me of um, Robert Mitchum in The Night of the Hunter, who's this Southern preacher who's got love and hate on his knuckles as he's doing it because he, it's just not Johnson. And, that's, and that is a problem as to why I think the, the speech is forgotten about.
3: But it becomes Johnson. Right, I think it's a good inaugural speech. I don't think it's Johnson's best speech. Johnson's best speech is the speech where he introduces voting rights legislation, where he says in front of a joint session of Congress, "We shall overcome." And I can't even imagine a sitting president, you know, sort of adopting a protest chant, right, Um, in this contemporary moment. But I think he gets better at this part of oratory in the year that follows this speech. So it's kind of he doesn't at that moment, I think, have the ability to really deliver it particularly well. When you watch it, he's reading. A lot of it, he looks down a lot. He's, he's clearly not a politician comfortable in the television era, but I do think that the register that he's in here is the one that he ends up moving into and that gets much stronger in the March. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach
2: waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
3: In the March speech,
4: it is always worth bearing in mind the relevant context for a lot of these speeches. In general, a first inaugural speech may be a more striking performance than a second inaugural for those presidents who have two terms. Those presidents who make their inaugurals against a background of crisis are always more likely to have something striking to say. We remember Roosevelt in 1933 or Lincoln's second inaugural again with the the closing stages of the Civil War and of course also we know that Lincoln only has a few more days to live he's shot not long after the second inaugural so there's a great deal about the context that shapes the way we respond to these speeches when we read them on the web they're all presented in in identical ways page after page But those contexts matter. And I think that contrast comes out with just thinking about Johnson and Kennedy. Kennedy is the new president. It's a generational turnover when Eisenhower gives way to Kennedy. When Johnson gives his speech, he has already been president for over a year. And that makes the occasion a slightly more underwhelming one. So we should never lose sight of the particular contexts that very much shape the speeches and very much shape our attitudes to the speeches and the
1: reputations they acquire. I entirely agree with what um, Chris has said and um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, is that today, or the today in which we're recording this, is the anniversary of Eisenhower's farewell address which is only one of two farewell addresses that is, remembered. the other one being by um, Washington, and if you look at that and put it back to back with Kennedy's inaugural address, which comes a few days later what you can see is, is something about that political moment at the height of the Cold War, you have got an old man who has kind of been worn down by the presidency, he finishes his speech by saying he's looking forward to becoming a private citizen again and you've got this apparently young man, though actually rather ill man, who is almost welcoming all the burdens of the presidency um, upon him and, and that comes out very strongly in the physical way that they look in delivering these two um, speeches. They are Cold War speeches and they are both of them actually aspiring to try to achieve the same thing, peace but in the differences between them they capture just how impossible this burden of the presidency is at that time. And
0: just to remind people, Eisenhower's speech is remembered for one phrase, the military-industrial complex.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And the speech that comes after that, which Helen just referred to uh, Kennedy's inaugural speech, is actually interesting because you could argue that every presidential inaugural speech during the Cold War is sort of a crisis speech, but Kennedy's speech, you could say, in a way, ushers in crises. And the the part that's actually known best in the speech that people generally reflect upon and they admire, but I find actually a little bit terrifying when you think about it, is the paragraph he says, let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price— bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and success of liberty. And then he goes on, this much we pledge and more. So it's like saying, not only does there a PlayStation 4 and a bicycle under the tree, but if you check the garage, there's a pony. So this is a moment in which Kennedy is going well beyond what George Kennan ever envisioned when he outlined the strategy of containment, which he saw as being relevant to a few select areas of the globe that were crucial for American defense and prosperity, right? This is Kennedy saying, we're going to do what Truman suggested, but better than what Truman suggested, which is to enact containment and perhaps roll back everywhere – And more, which is certainly taking on quite a lot and you could say ties his hands when it comes to things like the Bay of Pigs
0: and Vietnam. The other thing about that speech, which I was struck by when I read it, and a lot of these speeches have conflicting themes, it's also a globalist speech So we would now call this globalism. Among other things, he says he wants to strengthen and broaden the remit of the United Nations, which he says is one of the most important institutions in the history of man. Presidents do not say that anymore. What you've described is the international part of it. Mm -hmm. But this kind of we are one planet, and it begins this series of speeches, and it includes Johnson's, which is the age of space travel. And presidents start to talk about how the the earth looks from space. And Johnson does it explicitly. And then Nixon does it even more explicitly in 69. But this period where you know, we're America, we're fighting a war, we, we have enemies, you know, going back to Truman's speech, which just says, this is democracy, this is communism. And there's a very sharp line between them. But this kind of globalist thing, which is we are just one earth, one people, whatever that Queen song is, one love, one, one vision. The most extreme version of it is Nixon in 69.
1: It is. I just want to go back to one point about Kennedy's Though We're getting before get, into this before now. we get onto this. is, is because I think that it, this is a good illustration that point that Aaron's just made is, is how the phrases that are remembered are actually quite distorting of what's in the speeches. Is is that phrase is commented on again and again in Kennedy's speech and explaining his foreign policy. But actually if you look at the speech, it's at odds with the central part of it, which is a peacemaking speech if we go on to Nixon what I mean I really like Nixon's I'm going to put my cards on the table the middle part of it is a dirge and and rather dull but the beginning and the end of it are great and the beginning of it is back to this peacemaking theme Nixon wants to be remembered as a great peacemaker he wants to end the cold war that's what he's essentially saying um, at the beginning and it's against this backdrop in which presidents have simultaneously as David said commenting on sort of the whole of humankind in relation to space and at the same time talking about humankind's capacity completely to destroy life on earth via nuclear weapons. They're the two themes, I think, that run through the, the 60s and the 70s speeches. And Nixon does them both. But he finishes with this kind of, really, I find it, I have to say, moving sort of peering to what it is like to have seen the earth the way that God has seen it and to talk about as being, I think, its fellow travellers on earth. And that it is, a, it is an appeal to the whole of humankind. This isn't just about my fellow citizens of America. This isn't just about the American Republic, that this is something much more than that. And one of the reasons why I find it moving is is because here is this man who's aspiring to greatness to take all this on board, and he he actually ends up completely obviously destroyed by the presidency. And as Henry Kissinger put it, that he was a man destroyed by a third-rate burglary, and that is a fate of biblical proportions for a man who had the aspirations that Nixon did, and they're all there in that speech. And imagine what he could have accomplished if he had been loved. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay, let's talk about a couple more. So I'll just very briefly talk about Reagan um, in 81, just because, again, I I did find it, I don't want to oversell this, but I did find it fascinating reading these through in a kind of sequence because it's like a story of America. The sort of Roman bit, the fake humility bit, Lincoln saves the nation, we go through these world wars, we're in the Cold War, the Space Age, and then Reagan comes along and he delivers a speech which to me is different from all the ones that have gone before, because it's like a speech from a movie. I mean, I'm not just saying this because he was a movie actor. It's like the speech you would imagine a screenwriter writing for a president who was delivering an inspiring inaugural address in a film. And it ends with this line, which to me is totally different from all the other ones. So I'll just do the last couple of bits. We need to believe in ourselves and to believe in our capacity to perform great deeds, to believe that together with God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. So that could come from a lot of presidential inaugurals. This bit couldn't. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. That's like a sports movie. That's like the speech you get at halftime. You know, we are the Crimson Tide. We are the sort of quacking ducks, whatever. We can come back. We're 7-0 down. And also it made me laugh because it's just got that kind of, why shouldn't we believe that? We're Americans. We'll believe any old nonsense. <laughs> so I shouldn't say that. But, and at the same time, it moved me almost to tears.
2: I should point out that I'm actively crying right now because, <laughs> well, both it, because David referred to the quacking ducks and not the mighty ducks <laughs> and because I am that much of a sap for America.
0: <laughs> But it's it's a different register. I mean, maybe they're all a bit like this, but it just has... I, did Peggy Noonan write this speech? Do we know? We should check this. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I
1: think the thing as well as about it is is that this is the age of somebody who has come out of the entertainment industry to be president, as, as you just said. I mean, it's not that there's not quite a number of references to God in it. I mean, in that sense, he's not stepping outside the biblical tradition, but there's nothing biblical in its phrasing nothing biblical in this syntactical structure it's, it's, of a, the storytelling speech, it's a storytelling and, and it, speech and each yeah. story is
0: a little story and it's personalized it's in the age of, anecdotes yeah. it's, exactly that's the word it's anecdotes about people people who sacrifice themselves yeah. and so on
1: i mean it starts off with this defense of less government in which is not very anecdote-based at all. It's just quite a partisan speech, the first part of the speech, much more so than any of the presidents that had come prior to Reagan. And then it becomes all about American heroes, and it, which is very much done via anecdotes. But the thing why it works in its own terms is, is because Reagan's completely comfortable in his own skin delivering that speech. Is It's a completely different style of delivery to Kennedy's, but it's as good a style of delivery as Kennedy's in terms of the match between what he's saying and how he's saying it.
0: And we may get a version of that on Friday.
1: I think that Trump's will be not dissimilar to Reagan's.
0: OK, I want to talk about one more, and then we'll maybe wrap up by just saying a couple of words about Donald Trump. A really important speech was George W. Bush's second inaugural. Actually, his second inaugural inevitably was much more important than his first, because his first preceded nine eleven, and his second was right at the heart of the war on terror. Um, as he famously said, when he won his second term, uh, I now have some political capital, and I intend to spend it um and he was going to spend it in part on the promotion of democracy. So his second inaugural is a you know pretty clear actually well laid out statement of democracy promotion. It's in that cold war tradition these are our friends these are our enemies these are the people we will defend at whatever cost. We will defend human rights. We will identify regimes which we think are a threat to democracy. In those regimes we will support the opponents of the regime who are seeking to promote democracy in those regimes. It's 12 years ago. It's like in, in political terms, it's a lifetime ago. I've been trying to think of a reversal. And I know we've argued about this before. Is Trump actually a Republican? But at least he was elected on the Republican ticket. So for a single party, if Trump belongs to that party, to have overturned its philosophy of international relations so thoroughly as from Bush, W. Bush 2, to whatever Trump's going to say, because Trump doesn't believe any of that.
1: It seems like it can't possibly be 12 years ago that a Republican president was saying this, but I think that that's reflective of the fact that it isn't just the Republican Party that's been turned upside down since 2004. It's a great deal of Western politics, and a lot of it has come from the failure of what Bush was articulating in that speech, and obviously, most importantly, the failure in Iraq. That has ripped up important elements of the trust between citizens and their governments. It has made the neoconservative position in the Republican Party a very small minority position. In fact, you, in some sense, more likely now to see the neoconservative arguments being made in the Democrat Party, at least you were during this election campaign. It's been a world turned upside down since George Bush was articulating that agenda.
3: I agree. And I think it's, it's not just in this recent election. I mean, I know that in Britain and in Europe, Obama, when he was elected, was heralded as very much a change in foreign policy terms, but he's kept up most of the policies of the war on terror and most of the infrastructure of the war on terror from the Bush era. So in that way, the positions that are being articulated in that second inaugural have been almost completely absorbed into what is now the Democratic Party mainstream foreign policy thinking. And so I think it's part of in a way, the natural ebb and flow of opposition politics, that those positions would then find their way out of the Republican Party because it doesn't make a lot of sense for an opposition party to be treading on the same turf as the governing party on foreign policy if you're trying to make some kind of critique. I don't think that the neoconservative position in the Republican Party is totally gone. I think you still are getting some of it from... You know, some of the older Republicans, your sort of John McCain types are still talking about this. And that's why it's McCain who's holding the hearings on Russia. And it's sort of he's still, I think, one of Trump's more vocal critics on on foreign policy. But it is interesting to see, especially what's happened to the kind of foreign policy expert community of neoconservatives, because they're really on the outs. And a lot of them were the people who were signing the never Trump letters during the election and, you know, saying they would rather vote for Hillary than vote for Trump. And now all those same people are complaining that they can't get jobs in the administration, which it somehow it didn't click that, um, that opposing Trump was going to mean that you weren't going to be employed. But I, but I do think that part of the reason is because Obama's kind of kept up with, with so many of those policies.
0: And when you look at this sequence of speeches all the way through, like I said at the beginning, they never missed one. There aren't many where you think a president has come in and used the speech to signal a complete sea change. Continuity is, is the continuous theme of these speeches, the continuous story of American liberty. I mean, maybe Roosevelt in '33 is one where it's like, it's new now.
1: I think Reagan's trying to do that as well in the okay. first part of the speech. Right.
0: But it's it's still relative to what Trump could say, I mean, I just don't know, we don't know, we'll see. I mean, he could, maybe he'll go back and either in a mock way or really pay lip service to this idea of American continuity. But at least potentially, he could give a speech, which is radically different from everything that's gone before. I mean, there is a there is an arc that certainly runs through the Cold War through to Obama, where you, you can link these speeches up, Maybe there's going to be a break.
1: I think that's true. And the only caveat I would put to it is is that one of the things that I think is quite striking, and I think that in some ways Bill Clinton's one we haven't talked about is a kind of watershed. There here, are lots we yeah. haven't <laughs> talked about, I should say. Is, uh, is that, particularly in, you know, in, in the middle of the 20th century, there is a, a quite strong streak of pessimism that runs through these speeches. And again, I, I kind of want to call it biblical pessimism. It's matched by optimism, you know, the age of space, but it's countered by what I think it's Kennedy calls is the destructive forces of science because of nuclear weapons. And, and just the fallibility of man, that's uh, yeah. the biblical and is, is, you and know, Kennedy talks about the burden of a long twilight struggle. Now, there isn't any way that Bill Clinton is going to use that kind of language, and you can kind of see that this kind of what I kind of think of as somewhat facile optimism that starts coming out from the Clinton inaugural onwards. I think it's there even in Bush's second inaugural. And I think that what we will get from Trump is is back to that kind of pessimism. I don't think it will only be a pessimistic speech, but it will have darker undertones, more pessimistic undertones um, than what we'd been used to.
0: Okay, well, we're going to see, because he's going to give it 5pm UK time, if everything runs to schedule on Friday. A few of us are going to be in King's College, Cambridge, Maha, Aaron and, and me at 6pm, so after the speech. And if you follow us on Facebook Live, you can see us react in real time in the way that we did when Trump was elected. We got a little bit more warning this time. We're going to be calmer, maybe. We were quite calm, but there may be fewer tears than there were then. Who knows, or we may be inspired. We may be crying like we've been crying through this podcast, moved by his rhetoric. Next week, I'll be talking to Jill Lepore, the New Yorker essayist and Harvard historian, one of the most interesting writers about American politics, particularly about the Tea Party. And I'll be talking to her, among other things, about how you get from the Tea Party to Trump. But we'll also be reflecting on a world in which Donald Trump is president and lots of other things besides. We haven't today talked about Theresa May's Brexit speech yesterday, which wasn't quite of a sort of American inaugural level of rhetoric, but it was probably a more important speech, actually a more consequential speech than about 95% of American inaugurals. So we've got all that to talk about as well. Do please join us again next week. Join us on Friday to see us respond to Donald Trump. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
3: At this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. Now at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is as well known to the public as to myself, and it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it, all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and defied effects by negotiation." Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with, or even before, the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope... Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations.